So we continue in our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, but before we dive in, I just want to share with you a couple of thoughts. You know, my friend John Fobb here just sang for us just a, be- just a beautiful solo for us just a minute ago. Uh, wasn't the music fabulous this morning? Just so grateful for our music team. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So John came in, he uh, was back here kind of studying my sermon. He says, Harold, I want you to know something. He said, today is my 15th, 15th year anniversary of Covenant New Covenant. He said, I was walking across the parking lot, I was going to Dunkin' Donuts, and this particular little blonde-haired lady asked me, because I was singing and evidently humming along or something, she says, I noticed that you sing. She says, would you please come join our choir? And that was that little person was Sharon Peterson, who was the, our choir director at the time, and John has been coming to church ever since. Isn't that amazing? It's a great story. So you want to share with his 15th anniversary, and so grateful for that. The second thing I want you to know, I don't know if you picked up on this, but this is pretty incredible. As he's playing the piano and John singing, a, a sheet of paper flies off and uh, Sean actually catches it mid-spring, breaks it and throws it back up there and continues to play. That is amazing. That is pretty impressive. I want you to know that. Not everybody can pull that off, but I want you to know, kudos to Sean Pollock to be able to pull that off. That is pretty cool. All right. So, uh, uh, so we, we continue our sermon series on um, the Lord's Prayer, and I have really enjoyed preaching on this. I have learned so much, and I hope that you all have as well. I think that's just great that we can once again dive into the words of Jesus, some of the most important words that we find in the, all the scriptures as he teaches his disciples how to pray. And, and what's very powerful, each sentence is really packed with so much power and information if once we kind of break it all down. And so um, we, once again, we're reminded today, okay, our Father who art in heaven, how would it be thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. Or as the gospel, Matthew describes it, deliver us from the evil one. Okay, and so this is where we pick up this, uh, this morning, which I know that many of you are thinking, oh, great, Pastor Harold is going to preach on temptation to evil. It's going to be my favorite sermon. Okay, so anyway, so let me, um, let me read, and I'm going to read this morning from, we're going to read from Genesis, the third uh, chapter, and, um, because this is the story where we find uh, Adam Eve being tempted. So I got some from the Old Testament. We have some from the New Testament for the book of James. Here are these words. Uh, This is from the message this morning. So the serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it. Don't, Don't go near it or you'll die. And the serpent told the woman, you're not going to die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll just, well, you'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. And when the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she took and ate the fruit and then gave some of it to her husband and he ate it. And immediately the two of them did see what's really going on, saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together as a makeshift clothes for themselves. From the book of James, no one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. 
but the one is tempted by one's own desire, but lured and enticed by it. Then when desired has conceived, it's engendered sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, amen and amen. Okay, so listen, just a quick little review. You know, we talked about, last week, we talked about the temptation, and, or about uh, uh, trespasses. We actually talked about three things, three key words last week. We're about sin, we talked about debts, and we talked about trespasses. And, you know, when we think about um, the idea of sin, it's an archer term, you know, about missing the mark or straying from the path. And uh, Luke refers to sin in the Lord's Prayer. And then Matthew's version, when we find on the Sermon on the Mount, the sixth chapter of Matthew, we find that Luke uses a little different terminology, and he talks about um, the idea of debts. And I share with you all the idea of being, if you were in debt back in 2,000 years ago, it's a great metaphor. Once again, Jesus was using terminology that people could have very easily related to because if you were in debt, because it usually had to do with agriculture, that you had to pay the, if you were a a tenant and you owed the person that owned the land and you had to pay them and your crop didn't do very well, then you'd be in deeper debt each each year. And so you could actually go to debtor's prison and the person that actually got you out of prison who paid, who was willing to pay your debt, to pay it off, they would call that person the redeemer. And the part of where you would pay that off would be the redemption. And which, what a great, powerful image that we reminded today about Christ's loving power to redeem us, to forgive us, to forgive us our debts. And then the third word there is the word trespasses. And so I did, once again, I did a little, I didn't have a chance to talk a lot about about trespasses last week, but the word trespasses literally means to infringe on someone else's turf or to infringe upon someone else's rights. It also has to do with be swept away by impulse. So when you think about what the story I just read just a minute ago, the Garden of Eden story where, where Eve is tempted by the serpent, the evil one, um, which is very powerful because God has said, do not do one thing, but they had to go do it anyway, right? And, and so what's very interesting is you think about the words trespasses. So God has said, listen, don't go near that tree. Don't even touch the tree or lest you'll die. And so when once Eve crosses the line and she touches the tree and takes the fruit in the story, she's trespassing, isn't she? Because the tree really doesn't belong to her. It belongs to God. And God says, you can have any tree you want. You can have, do whatever you want in the garden, but do not go near that tree. And so literally when she, once again, touches that tree, she is trespassing and she is infringing upon God's rights. And so we've been in that journey ever since, right? For thousands and thousands of years, this is this kind of pool that we have. It's like, almost like when I was a kid, you would walk through a gift shop and it would say, do not touch. And that made me want to touch it that much more as a kid, right? It's exactly the same kind of, you know, in this, this drawl that we have. Don't go there, don't go there, but then we find ourselves going there. I was watching this show the other day, actually two shows that were really interesting as I would kind of, kind of weave them into my message this week. I, was about, I think it was Friday night, I was watching this show, uh, and I think it was see, what was called, um, it was the show called uh, by William Shatter, The Unexplained. 
And, and I don't know, William Shatner is just amazing to me. I mean, that guy is old. You know, he's 91. Now, you know, William Shatner is the one that played Captain Kirk on Star Trek. Do you remember? Okay. And so back in the 60s and 70s. So he's 91 and he's still working. He's amazing. Matter of fact, he was just, um, he was up in outer space the other day. And, you know, he's the oldest astronaut ever. So he's 91 years old, still flying up into space, came back down, and he's still working. And he was doing this show called The Unexplained. And what was very interesting, he was doing this, this particular show was talking about this couple that for somehow they're just intrigued with strange items. And they've been able to, I don't know if they make money off this or they have this actually this business or somehow, or they have this, this a, a willingness to take on objects around the world that people are convinced that they're cursed. And so they literally, I want you to know, they don't live in the villages as far as I know. And um, they have, but they, people from all over the world say, listen, I've got this object. It's creeping me out. I don't know what's going on, but when I'm around it, it makes me sick or it gives me the willies and it could be a picture or these, all these kind of strange objects and say, they either bring them to these, this couple or they mail them to this couple. And so they have a, a, a basement full of all this weird, weird stuff. And let me tell you something, I'd be afraid to be able to live in that house because I'd be afraid it was going to get nuked. I just want you to know that. So they have all these strange things. So I started thinking, it was really, when I was watching this kind of unfold and they were kind of showing all these strange, supposedly cursed objects, I started thinking about how, how committed these people are to make sure that they get this evilness or this cursed object out of their lives. And then I started thinking, well, I wonder how adamant they are about wanting to make sure that they don't have, that they got rid of the object, but how committed are they are to once again to release the evilness, the sinfulness in their lives? Are they just as committed? And so this is where we're going with this. I think that Jesus really wants to, when we think about this idea of, um, about, uh, about temptation and leading us, from, out of, leading us from, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or lead a, uh, to, to deliver us and, and lead us not into temptation, but keep us away from evil. This is, Jesus is really clear about this. And it's powerful, isn't it? I mean, evil is powerful, it's it's a a real thing there's evilness in the world and jesus says hey listen we don't want to go there it's always surrounded but the temptations are always there but jesus don't go there don't go don't go near it and so what's very powerful to me and i thought this is a a rather so the other night i was watching this other show and it was on the national geographic show and um, because i love national geographic and so uh, this is the, the title of the show was Something Bit Me. Matter of fact, I think I got a picture of this is a new show, Something Bit Me. I know you all are thinking, you watch some really weird stuff here. So anyway, so I, I got the William Shatner thing and all this kind of cursed stuff and staying away from evil and getting rid of that. So then, so the, the, the two part, of the, there was two stories. And so this guy was out actually down in Palm Beach County and he was out in the middle of the forest to jump, uh, um, and like in the swamp and his wife was with him. His wife was hunting with him also. And so he's walking through it. He goes around a palmetto bush, and as soon as he walks around the palmetto bush, he takes a step forward, and all of a sudden, he feels this searing pain in his leg. And he looks down, and he realizes that his foot is in the, bo- in the back of the mouth of an alligator. He stepped right on an alligator, right? So the alligator, of course, bit him, right? You're going to walk in front of an alligator. What's the alligator? Hey, you're on my turf, bud. 
I, you know, I, so he, he literally grabbed a hold of him. And there, so he began to tell this guy was very animated. He was uh, very creative in how he explained what happened. He said, it is terrible pain. I realized that I looked down and I had my, and so he started screaming. And his wife came to him and some, and what saved this guy's life was a, literally saved his life because the alligator was going to eat him. He literally had a, one of those snake boots that went up way up on his leg. And so evidently they were so strong that even though it was began to crush his leg, it saved his life. He was able to finally get his boot out of the alligator's life and he actually went to the hospital and he was in survive. That was the first story. The second story is this, something bit me. There's two ladies are down. This is, this is a little closer to home. This is right down the street in Orlando, Florida. So these two ladies who were at a nursing, I think there was a nursing convention. And so they're walking out of the nursing convention and all of a sudden they look across the parking lot and there's these two guys and they're in this little lift. You know how lifts go up to be able to change light bulbs or whatever around the villages? Okay, so they were in this little, and they're clamped in because of the safety harness. And as they were changing out the banners at the Orlando Convention Center, all of a sudden when they jiggled one of the banners, they stirred up a beehive. And all of a sudden, they didn't realize it wasn't just a beehive. It was hundreds of thousands of bees that were stirred up. They had no idea. So what did the bees do? They started attacking the poor two guys who were locked into the harness. They were swarming around and so forth. So these two ladies are watching and look across the parking lot. And um, they didn't really know what to do. They were, so what was very interesting is that one of them literally stopped and did absolutely, she didn't know what to do. She just stood there. She was speechless, did nothing, nothing. The other lady ran straight towards the guys who were getting attacked by the tens of hundreds of thousands of these bees because she realized if she didn't do something, those two guys were going to die, literally because they're going to get stung to death. So they, um, she, got, she gets there, and evidently, here's what a blessing, she fires, finds a fire extinguisher, and she blasts the tarnation out of those bees, and literally gets the guys out of those two harnesses, gets them out of the lift, and they call the paramedics, and they finally come and rescue the two guys, and not only the two guys, but the woman who actually risked her life to go in to all the bees, and she got stung up as well. She ends up in the hospital. Now, when she's in the hospital, she said, she notices that she feels something crawling around her hair. She pulls out, and she says she finds a, one last bee. She takes the bee, throws it on the ground, kills the bee, right? So they pick up the bee, they put it in a little specimen container, and she kept it as a souvenir. And like two or three days later, she goes back to the nurses' convention, and she finds someone who actually does this kind of expert who knows something about bees, and she hands it over to the guy who knows everything about bees. She says, what kind of bee is this? He says, oh, I know exactly what kind of bee is. That's one of those African killer bees. Wow. So here's, here's my question for us to think about today, right? So I'm wondering, how would you have dealt with that situation? Would you just stood there, or would you run straight towards the bees? I, I was thinking about this this week. <clears throat> I got an email. Um, I get lots of emails, by the way. I, I got an email from someone who was um, recently listening to one of my sermons, and, and they wanted to know... Um, they want to know why Jesus wasn't doing something about the war in Ukraine. 
Pastor, why is it Jesus doing something? So what, as I was reading this email, I'm thinking how I interpret it was, you know, it's almost like Jesus, just don't stand there, do something. I mean, come on, Jesus, do something. And, and there's, two, there's two different ways of thinking about that in, in life, isn't it? Um, I think there's, there's a way that we can look at that and think, okay, you know, I, I wish that Jesus would just, you know, fix it. But that isn't always how Jesus works. He just doesn't always just fix things, especially when you're dealing with a war. And so I thought it was very powerful. And so what I, I share with her, you know, and I don't know how you all responded to that question, but how I responded to the question is it takes me back to Genesis 3. And that's how I responded. I said, you know what? We have this in our church. We call the doctrine of good and evil. And so we go back and you look at the original creation story. And so there was a choice that was called. We have this doctrine of free will. And so, and so we all have to make choices. And so I think that Jesus is not just standing there. I think that Jesus has already done something. And what I mean by that is I really trust and believe that Jesus has done everything that he could possibly do. And he showed us the way. And he's told us the way. And as I was mentioned in my prayer just a minute ago, as Wisner Wesley would call it, he would call it holiness. And Jesus said, listen, you're supposed to love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, I'm willing to sacrifice my life. You know, let me tell you something. Jesus is not just standing there. He's already done something. And so when you think about the, I, that word about trespassing and you want to put it and apply to what's happening in different places of the world, especially what's happened in Ukraine, um, I, I would call that trespassing. I mean, we're in the middle, there's a, a, a war going on on the other side of the planet, and I would call that trespassing, you know? And I think most of the world would be agreeable with that. It's someone who is trespassing upon someone else's rights, and that is evil. It's wrong. Uh, Jesus said, listen, I, and Jesus has done something. He has showed us the way. He's talked about love. He's, he's showed us by what it really means to be sacrificial, and he's willing to show us and to be able to live it this is, Jesus is not just standing there. He has done something. I mean, you think about there is evil in the world. And I, I'm, I'm guaranteeing when you walk out, you're going to say, well, you know what? That really was maybe one of my least favorite sermons, Pastor Hill. But I'm just telling you something. There is evil in the world. Listen, you know what? Many of us experienced it about a week and a half ago. You watched it. You watched in the news that some young man who's the age of 18 has literally goes into Buffalo and in the Buffalo, New York, and he goes and finds a grocery store where people are most predominantly black, and he starts shooting black people. Somehow he justifies that. I would call that trespassing, infringing upon someone else's rights. It's just wrong. And so then last front, last Sunday afternoon, after we had just gotten out of worship, there are some. Asian people were worshiping at the Presbyterian Church in California, and some other guy walks into their worship experience, and they start shooting people, and the preacher gets involved, and literally, he tackles the guy and literally ends up saving other people's lives. I would call that trespassing. I would call that infringing upon other people's rights. There is evil in the world. It's everywhere. And so Jesus has, I don't think that Jesus is just standing there. I think that Jesus has showed us the way, but there's this constant force between goodness and evilness, and, and people choose the wrong way. And yet, I'm terrified to tell you, because the gift of the resurrection, goodness and love and hope that's found in Jesus Christ 
There is victory in that. Can we amen on that? That's the promise that we have. That's the hope that we have as Christians. It's the hope that I have for my life. It's the hope that I have for your life. It's the hope that Jesus Christ is willing to die for all our sins and showed us the way. Jesus is not just standing there doing nothing. No, Jesus has done something. Let's be really clear about that. He's died for our sins. He showed us the way. He says, you have the freedom to make good choices or bad choices, and you decide how you want to do that. But I have showed you the way. And the way, the, the way that I would hope that you would live is to live a life that you're will, will, willing to be able to love God with everything that you have and love your neighbors yourself. And by the way, I give you a brand new command, love just as I have taught you to love. That's the way. Jesus is not just standing there. So I was thinking this last week, and you know, I, I, love, um, I love quotes, and uh, what, I, I love the... Uh, the 19th century uh, playwright, Oscar Wilde. He's got this kind of way of just whimsical kind of way of spinning words. So for example, and he has a really good quote on temptation. He says, you know, this is on intelligence. I'm being smart. He says, you know, I'm so clever that sometimes I don't understand a single word of what I'm saying. (laughs) He said on 18, the old believe everything, the middle age suspect everything, and the young know everything, he said. He, he said, on money, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I'm old, I know that it is, he said. <laughs> and he said, on God, he says, I think that God and created man somewhat overestimated his ability. <laughs> and then he said, on forgiveness, always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. <laughs> and then on temptation, he said, I can res- resist anything except temptation. Do you get that? I can resist anything except temptation. We all struggle with that. You know, I was thinking, it reflected upon, you know, we had the seven deadly sins. We've got, you know, lust and gluttony and greed and difference and anger and envy and pride. And they just kind of continue to kind of creep up in our lives, right? And we, there's this kind of inward struggle we, we all have. We're trying, trying to do the right thing and not doing the right thing. And we have this kind of, you know, we all have our own stuff that we have to deal with in life. Name your own temptation, right, in our daily journey. Like, for example, you know, when I had my accident, you know, I, I, I quit drinking Mountain Dew. And, and my wife was rejoicing over that. She was really excited because I thought, man, this stuff is really not, doesn't taste very good. It's all really, really sweet. And about two weeks later, I just go right back to it, right? I'm, you know, I have my own temptation. Matter of fact, I, I don't know who else, this is, I'm the only person I know that's done this, that ran the Boston Marathon. And then when I finished the Boston Marathon, here's, let me show you a picture. What am I carrying? A Mountain Dew, right? <laughs> So let me tell you something, what is, your, what is your vice? What is it, you know, I know that Mountain Dew is not healthy. I know that it's got caffeine. I know it's got sugar, but you know, you know, I continue to gravitate back to it, right? I mean, we all have our stuff. We all have something in our life. What is your temptation, right? And may, well, and listen, there's temptations everywhere. If he, the one who's, well, continues to struggle with pornography, pornography, and it could be the click, or it could be the person who struggles with alcoholism, it could be the drink, it could be the person who struggles with gossip and they hear something and they cannot wait to be able to share it. We're always tempted. It's there. It's that constant struggle between good and evil, right, wrong. And you know what's interesting? A lot of times we have a tendency to push it to the limit. Right on the teetering on the edge, right? Right? 
I mean, we're standing there, and so, for example, the other day, you know, uh, last Saturday night, I was uh, coming back from Luke's graduation, and um, I, I was, it was amazing. It was like a miracle. Here's the miracle. No traffic from all the way from Fort Lauderdale all the way to the villages. Woo! It was amazing. I, I, I almost never happens, right? So because there was like on that particular Saturday afternoon, we didn't run into the wrecks. There's usually a wreck somewhere on I-4 or, you know, on the interstate or in the turnpike or somewhere. And so um, I'm just cruising along. And so I set my cruise control. You know what? What's the, what's the, uh, what's the speed limit on the turnpike? 70. Okay, so I know that the limit is probably somewhere between, set, well, it's really probably 80 because the, usually the police officers don't pull you over unless you're going like 80 or above because they give you that kind of 10 mile an hour kind of breathing room. So what did I put my cruise control on? 79. <laughs> is anybody else ever guilty of that besides me, right? Okay, so my point in sharing with you that story, I mean, I made great time. It was amazing. It got me from point A to point B, and I was able to maximize my, my time, and it was very efficient, and I, made, I felt so good about that and so proud of myself, and I didn't get caught, right? <laughs> but the, the legal limit is really 70, but I knew that I could get away with maybe I can't go 80, so I'm going to put it at 79. See, we have a that's a simple illustration about pushing it to the limit. I mean, we all have our little things, don't we, for in life about, you know, like, for example, uh, here, here's another one about just kind of like doing the right thing in life. It's simple, but there's a temptation not to do it. So if you go to Walmart, has anybody been to Walmart Okay, so if you go to Walmart and you, what do you do? You go get your cart, right? Okay, so you go shopping, you fill your cart up, you pay whatever, and then you go back to your cart. You know what I noticed at Walmart? Is when I go and pull on my parking spot, I, what I see is those little carts, they're everywhere all across the parking lot. They're everywhere. It's because most people, or a lot of people, they have Walmart, like Publix and Windix, they've strategically placed this little kind of area, this camping area for carts, right? And so you're supposed to, when you finish with your cart, to do like the right thing and take the cart and put it back where all the other little carts are so it makes it easier for all the employees to be able to gather all the carts because they're all in one area. But that's not what happens. The temptation is, I'll just leave the cart wherever it lies. And so let somebody else deal with it, Right? I, I think it's just another example in life that we can, and I'll give you an example of that. I mean, that's to me, it's just almost like being lazy. Ah, let somebody else do it, right? See the little temptations that we have in life over and over again? So I was thinking about this all this last week and reflect upon it. I, 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 I think it's really important. I, I think, and I, that little example about the golf cart, and I'm gonna give you a quote, and you're not gonna find it anywhere else because I'm the one that wrote it, but it said, this, here's the quote. I think the better we manage the small temptation in our lives, the better we equip, equip we are to handle the bigger ones when they come our way. I really believe that. It's the little things. It's about doing the right thing over and over and over again in our daily journey. Yeah. 
So we have this story today, and so I think it's really powerful. And um, you know, I got I got five more minutes. I mean, share with you all. So I know you aren't watching the clock, but I am. Okay. So anyway, uh, so when I look at the story of Adam and Eve, I think it's really because once again, when we have to understand that there is this one little line, and I always say don't miss the detail, but this is a really important detail because there's a place in the book of Genesis where once God figures out that Adam and Eve have trespassed on his tree, and we call this original sin, do you realize that all of a sudden something has to die or something does die? Because if you go back in Genesis 3.21, and this is, you might think, that's just kind of a simple little, one little liner, but it's important because this is what Genesis 3.21 says, and the Lord made garments of skins for the man and the wife and clothed them because they realized they were naked. So once again, the detail is that once something has happened that it's sinful, usually what happens is the consequence of that sin, something ends up dying. And then, so that's the reason why there's this, the God had to make garments made of skins. Something died. Okay, to cover their nakedness, their shame. And you know what? I think it's so powerful because what happens in our lives, usually what happens in life is when, when you talk about you want to you kill a relationship, is it when you cross the line? So often in our lives, I mean, you, you can, and usually what happens is you can be spiteful, you can lash out, you can say mean things, you can commit adultery in some form or fashion. It, it's just amazing to be. And so once again, what happens in life is that something ends up dying when sin is brought into a relationship. I just think it's a common denominator to life. I think, you know, I watch a, a lot of these like murder mystery things there. I'm just kind of intrigued by it. I watch a lot of Dateline. And I thought it was really interesting because usually when it comes down to Dateline and when it comes to situations, like I, I'm thinking, what were you thinking? Right? I mean, this, how could you be this stupid? It usually it comes down to greed and it comes down to insurance policy and it comes down to money and it has to do with adultery. It's, somebody's having sex with somebody else. And it's just a whole, just a, just a whole big pile of mess and all this evilness, all this brokenness, something has to die. And what's interesting when it comes to daylight, I, I thought, how do you think this is going to end up? No one asked that question. I love the quote from my friend Chuck Malyu, who was one of the greatest strategists I've ever met. He was a great friend of mine. After I got a picture of Chuck and Linda. This was actually taken to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I love Chuck. He got rest his soul. He died a few years ago. Um, right after we went to the Holy Land, he got the cancer for the second time, and shortly thereafter, he died. He was one of the greatest members of our church, so grateful for him. And one of the greatest quotes I've heard from Chuck Malyu, he says, Harold, you always start with the end in mind. And so when you think about our relationships with one another, start with the end in mind. When it comes to our idea about how we're going to be able to move forward in life, start with the end in mind. What's very interesting, the word temptation is literally connected to the word test. And when you think about the word test, you think about the idea, it's not so much about seduction, but the word temptation is also associated with a test, and it has to do with the strength and the loyalty that we have to Almighty God. Do you get that? 
the literal translation when it comes to temptation is not so much about being the seduction part. It has everything to do with being loyalty, loyalty to Almighty God. Hence the reason why when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, it was God who was asked him to do it. Is he going to be loyal to God or is he not going to be loyal to God? When you think about Jesus being in all the temptations in the desert, is he going to be loyal to God or is he not going to be loyal? When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, is he going to be loyal to God's plan or is he not? Temptation. So when you got, think about Jesus, when the serpent was trying to, once again, tempt him, Jesus, your way leads to the cross, my way leads to easy street. Your way leads to pain and suffering, my way leads to pleasure. Jesus, your way leads to humiliation, my way leads to fame and fortune. I close with this couple of thoughts. Temptation, this came from William Barclay. He says, temptation is not designed to make us fall. Temptation is designed to make us stronger and better people. Temptation is not designed to make, you, make us sinners. It is designed to make us good. We may fail in the test, but we are not meant to. We are meant to emerge stronger and finer. In one sense, temptation is not so much the penalty of being human, it's the glory of being human. If metal is to be used in a greater engineering project, it is tested at stress and strains far beyond those which is ever likely to have to bear. So we are tested, and out of that can come greater service. William Barclay. So I close with this thought today. So I, I, uh, Adam Hamilton shared this story one time. I thought it was actually a very interesting story. And it was about, a, um, it comes from Native American culture. So there's a grandfather who's um, Native American, and he has this conversation with his grandson. And and so the great, wise grandfather says, I want you to know something. He says, I want you to there's know there's two wolves that live inside of you. And the little boy says, what's that, grandfather? He says, there's two wolves that live inside of you. He says, one wolf is about goodness. It's about love. It's about compassion. It's about mercy. It's about hope. And then the other wolf is all about devouring you. It's about devastation. It's about evil. You got one good wolf, you got one evil wolf, and they both live inside of you. And the little boy says, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one that you feed. So I close with this thought. Don't let temptation bite you.